It is one of my favorite times of the year. Good to see Christmas decorations up and um, a live tree. For those that remember the discussion last week, um, lights on the outside of the sanctuary. I just want to thank all the people that came this week to decorate various nights and various days and working on the living nativity. It's part of what a family does. We get together and we decorate for Christmas. We celebrate the birth of our Savior. This week, though, we, were, we had that celebration, that mindset, the holiday spirit shattered by the news as we turned on our browsers or opened up the newspaper and heard of the shootings in San Bernardino at a holiday party, at a Christmas party. And we see now that maybe that was tied with terrorism, but whatever it was, it was a horrible tragedy as this mass shooting happened. And it's, it's really interesting to think about this in the context of Christmas, How do we come to terms with evil in this world? And and there's no other way to describe that but pure evil. How do we come to terms with evil in this world while we're supposed to be happy and joyous and celebrating? Trying to figure this out a little bit, the the New York Daily News, they took a whole front page for their headline and it said, God isn't fixing this. And it was in response to people saying, we're praying, our prayers are with those in San Bernardino. And what an interesting statement of where our culture is at. God isn't fixing this. Because what's behind that, what we don't see, is a worldview that is in contradiction with itself. And we need to think as we look at the news and think as we understand this. God isn't fixing this, but yet God has been relegated to only being applicable behind the doors of our house and behind the doors of our places of worship. Culture has routinely and systematically said you are not allowed to practice your religion in any way outside of the doors of your house because that's offensive to other people. How dare we then say God isn't fixing this when we have excluded God from all parts of normal life? And that's the the dilemma, that's the, the, the contradiction that the secular mindset has right now. We don't want God but we want his blessings and we want him to fix everything. But what I would say this morning, and and, and I I don't want to go off on a tangent on that, although I could, I'd love to. (laughs) How do we think about this as believers? We could spend our time railing on New York newspapers. They're not alone, guys. This is the secular mindset all around us. But when we see something like this, This should be a signpost, a marquee that says, this is why we need Christmas. It it fits the backdrop of Christmas because it's not that God isn't fixing this, it's that God already has fixed this. But we have ignored the fix. This is why Christmas is, this is why Christmas. Jesus saw a world that had given itself over to the slavery of sin. God saw a world that was in bondage to sin, that was reeling with the results of sin, and he sent his son into a dark and dying world on a rescue mission. That is what Christmas is about. And that's the same message we need today. So when we see the news of the shootings and when we see even secular opinions that we so deeply disagree with, my prayer for us is that our first thought becomes, oh, they need Jesus. Oh, they need to hear the gospel. I don't want us to run out and hate Muslims or or hate extremists, but realize the answer isn't to kill them. The answer is to share the gospel with them. That is the power of God this morning that we come to as we celebrate Christmas. 
it's like, I was trying to think of an example of this, of God isn't fixing this, but God already has. And, and I was thinking, and this is, you know, examples fall short, so it's a little silly, but bear with me. It's, imagine if my kids were sitting on the couch and they're like, oh, I'm starving, I'm hungry, you know, I, I'm going to wither away into nothingness. You know, you've heard all that. Any of you, with par- any of you parents, you've heard all this. And, and imagine if at the same time, Susie has just finished putting out an incredible feast on the table in the next room. And she says, if you'll just go in there, you'll be fine. There's food all over the table. And great food. I love my wife's cooking. And then the kids just sit there and say, I'm hungry. And then imagine if they looked at her and said, you're not fixing this. And the hurt and the insult that that is when she has given herself to this beautiful feast. And and, and that doesn't even compare to what Jesus has done. But that beautiful feast, if they would just get up, if they would just walk into the other room and accept what has been provided for them. But no, you're not fixing this. And so that's how I want us to think of this as we have the answer. Christmas begins the rescue mission. And as you're talking with your coworkers, as you're talking with your neighbors about this tragedy, we need to be praying for them. Because prayer is effective, and it does work, but prayers of believers. And when we talk with our friends and neighbors, we can say, this is the result of an evil world that rejects God. This is why we're celebrating Christmas, because God came to fix this. As we go to our text today, you're probably, what what does that have to do with our text today? It's a little bit of soapbox. A little bit of helping us understand how to take current events and process them. But it's interesting because today as we come to the names of the Holy Spirit, we come to the names of the Holy Spirit as He was involved in the cross, as He was involved in atonement, as He was involved in fixing this. And, and we realize that the Holy, it wasn't just Jesus on the cross, but the Holy Spirit was with Jesus there, not on the cross, but helping and, and empowering Him. This morning as we, we did the Advent reading, thank you, Terry, for doing that. One of the things in those verses is the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, right? She conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Holy Spirit involved in the work of Christ from the beginning in His virgin birth in Matthew and Luke. We see the Holy Spirit in His baptism descending like a dove on Him. We see the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. But Jesus follows His leading. We see that Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Could he have done it on his own power? Absolutely. He is fully God. But he chose to be an example to us and and minister through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see in his ministry in Matthew 12 that he cast out demons by the work of the Holy Spirit. He was part of the work of the resurrection in Romans 8. He will glorify Jesus in, in John 16. But he assisted in the atoning death of Christ. And so we want to look this morning that even at the cross, the Holy Spirit was part of the process of securing our salvation. Last week, in the last two weeks, we've talked a little about regeneration and and sanctification and the Holy Spirit's work in us. Today is the Holy Spirit doing God's work in salvation because we don't actually save ourselves. We can't. We can't fix this. Only God can fix this. But that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So we want to look at three names this morning. The first is eternal spirit. Eternal spirit. Turn with me to Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under the seat right around you. You're welcome to take that this morning and look through it. If you don't have one at home, oh, you need God's word. Take it home with you and and that's our gift to you. But Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. The eternal spirit. And as we read... I want you to listen to and read the context in which this name is given. Sometimes names don't seem to fit the context. And as we come to Scripture, part of studying Scripture is we always want to look at, okay, what what is the bigger context here? You don't just want to take one phrase out and say, ah, the Bible says that. You want to look at the context because in the names today, the names don't fit the context. I'll just say that up front. And so we have to dig a little bit and say, okay, why is that name given in that part of the story, of of that part of God's plan? So we want to look at that in Hebrews 9, starting at verse 12. He, speaking of Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And in verse 14 there, we see the only place where the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit. And that's used as a name. And eternal, we, we understand that. It, it simply means a period of time without beginning or end. And it reminds us that the Holy Spirit is God, right? He has no beginning, no end. In fact, it, we know in Hebrews 1 that only God is eternal. And so this is a reminder that the Holy Spirit is God. And, and, and that's comforting on its own. And, and we could take just that name and just that phrase and say, He is God, is, He is eternal, He is with us always, and that is all true, and that is part of this. But what's the context of these verses? The context is the cross. The context is Christ's sacrifice. And so when we come to Scripture, we need to ask things like, why? Why is this here? Why is the name eternal spirit used in the context of sacrifice for sins. I would think that that this should be the the spirit that enables atonement or the spirit that brings forgiveness. But there's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired us to use the name the eternal spirit here. And so we have to ask, what does Jesus' death on the cross have to do with eternality? What does it have to do with the eternal spirit? And so let's unpack these verses a little bit. I think we need to understand the imagery Few of us are familiar with sacrifices. Most of you this week did not sacrifice a cat or a dog or a cow or something like that to to be right with God. But but understand, Hebrews here is referring to the context of the Old Testament. And the Jews would have understood this. And so when you talk about goats and calves and the blood of goats and bulls, those were offerings that were typical of the, the atonement sacrifice. And those offerings were given to secure forgiveness of sins. Those animals were killed because we know that the wages of sin is death. And so they were killed in our place. The blood was sprinkled and that provided forgiveness. The other sacrifice that's mentioned there is the ashes of a heifer. And and what would happen is there were things that would make Jews ceremonially unclean, right? For instance, if they touched a dead body 
and, and not to be gross or anything, but there were different things that made them unclean, that made them unfit to come into the house of God for worship, which is really cool to think of that they took worship that seriously, that they wanted to be ready for worship. In fact, they had cleansing baths outside the temple so you could cleanse yourself before you came into worship. I think that's a great idea. I think we've put in a couple out here, Deacon Board, and um, some way to remind ourselves we're preparing ourselves to worship. But so someone would be unclean, and then the priest would take a heifer, and they would sacrifice it and sprinkle the blood on the altar, but then they would burn it. And and they would take the ashes and mix them with some water and, and sprinkle those on the person that was unclean, and that sacrifice would make them ceremonially clean, ready to worship God. Now, Jesus isn't saying, and the Holy Spirit isn't saying, we still need to do that. In fact, his argument here is that that's been done for us fully and completely for all eternity. And so if we read it, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, which is far, far better thus securing an eternal redemption. And and this is where, again, just a little bit of Bible study lesson. When you see the same word repeated, you want to look for links there. And so the, the whole passage is about securing us an eternal redemption, and that's why the word eternal spirit is used. We're going to see that connection here. Now in verse 13, he uses an argument from from the lesser to the greater, meaning if it works with the blood of goats, it'll work with the blood of God, of Jesus Christ. So he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so he's arguing from temporary solutions to eternal solutions. The Old Testament, those things were looking forward to Christ to when our sins would be forgiven completely, forever. And the sacrifice of Christ accomplished that. What an incredible gift from God started at Christmas with the rescue mission. But right there in the middle, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? And the first point there in understanding is Jesus went to the cross empowered by the Holy Spirit. He went to the cross empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was not alone either. The Holy Spirit was filling him and directing him and empowering him and guiding him, giving him the strength to go to the cross. Jesus lived a perfect example of walking by the Spirit. Last couple of weeks, we've talked about what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. I encourage you to take one of the Gospels, read through it. Just see how many times the Spirit's mentioned. See how many times Jesus relies on the Holy Spirit. Again, not because he had to, but he was showing us how to do this. And so the Spirit was the means that made this possible. He empowered Jesus. He was the helper to Jesus at this point. We'll see that same Holy Spirit is our helper in applying this work, applying this blood to our lives. So the first point, Jesus went to the cross empowered by the Holy Spirit. But what about the word eternal? And the second observation there is the eternal spirit speaks to the eternal nature and significance of Christ's sacrifice. 
Got that? That's a mouthful, right? Basically, by saying eternal spirit, it's speaking to that we are eternally forgiven. That we don't have to get to heaven and, and, and if we're walking with God and if we've repented and we've accepted Christ, we don't have to get to heaven and say, oh, the sacrifice was almost enough. There was one sin that it didn't quite cover and so, sorry, you can't spend eternity with God. This reminds us that no, the sacrifice was eternally sufficient without ending. It also means we won't get to heaven and spend a few years there and say, okay, your time's up. And we, I, we laugh about this because we understand eternal life, but what a comfort that is. What an encouragement that we will have eternity with Christ in communion with God. It'd be like if, if, if I bought a new car and, and a little note on the dashboard said, we'll only work half the days. And it doesn't tell you which half. Yeah, some of you, yeah, some of you are saying that is my car. That, that would be silly. We, we wouldn't buy that car because it would not be effective for help in our lives. The eternal spirit helping Jesus go to the cross to provide eternal redemption reminds us that forgiveness is complete and it is forever. What an amazing promise. And so the Holy Spirit is ensuring salvation. The verse goes on to, to a couple of things that that salvation ensured by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, provides a couple of the results there. If you look at the, the end of that verse, end of verse 14, who through the Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It wasn't just to give us a great gift. It was to accomplish something. And the first two things, the first thing is to purify our conscience from dead works. Second thing, to serve the living God. And so when we look at the lasting results, because he's the eternal spirit, clean consciences is the first thing in your notes. To purify our conscience from those dead works, those acts that lead to death. He provides forgiveness and cleansing for any and all dead works. And, and, and I stress that because we can't come today and have some dead works, some sinful works, some junk in our lives. We can't come today and have something that God can't handle because he's eternal and we are not. This is part of the promise of the eternal spirit. And what's interesting is when we think of purifying our conscience from dead works, there, there's two aspects to that. One is he takes away the dead works, right? If I'm feeling guilty about something and I'm still doing it, there might be a good reason I'm feeling guilty. And so the first is he takes away the dead works because our conscience can't be purified until the dead works are gone. And, you know, I think of just a couple practical examples. If if I'm coming and complaining to you about just how self-centered I am in marriage and and man, I need, I'm guilty about that. And I think my spouse just exists to serve me. And then you watch my home and yep, you're like, yeah, that's how you live every day. The Holy Spirit has to do a work to fix that before he can fix my conscience. That makes sense? And so he does a work in our lives to, to take away those sinful actions. But then this idea also has the, the concept of once it's forgiven, once it's taken care of, he helps us get past it. 
as, as I've talked with people, as I've worked with people, one of Satan's favorite tools is to make you guilty and make me guilty of things that the Spirit has already forgiven and taken care of and are gone out of our lives. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like thought back and said, man, I did this, I did this, or, or had something that just feels like it's a weight on your back because you know that you were there once? This is saying the eternal spirit, Christ through the eternal spirit cleanses us from that. He takes it away. Satan wants to terrorize you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to use your past against you. I don't care what's in your past. If it is forgiven by God and you've repented of it, it's done. And it does not have to be a weight on your head anymore. That's what I think of when I think of eternal spirit. Clean conscience. The second thing there in that verse is the clean consciences are for the purpose of serving God. The ability to serve the living God is the second lasting result. And, and it, it's, it's the idea of being able to serve God with confidence because the chains of sin are broken. A couple of years ago, the youth theme was saved to serve. This verse is sort of cleansed to serve. Same concept. God has done a work in you so that you can do a work for Him. It's not just about me. In fact, it's not about me at all. It's about His glory. What can I do for Him? At Christmas time, what gift can I give to the King? How can I serve Him? It's interesting, the word for serve here is often used of worship. And and the concept of serving God and worshiping God were were tied together in, in the New Testament. And And so as we serve God, that's an act of worship. Worship isn't just singing. Isn't that cool? For some of us, that's, that's a blessing because we, our voices, yeah. Worship isn't just singing. It's serving God. It's doing things for His glory. So the workers in nursery this morning while we were singing, they were worshiping by serving. The workers with our kids right now, corralling them, teaching them God's Word, they are worshiping right now because they're cleansed to serve, cleansed to worship. This is why we do things like Project Touch this Saturday as we go to every house in our neighborhood. Coolest thing I've seen us do as, as 100 people leave the, the church here and hit every house in the neighborhood. It's serving because we're saved and cleansed to serve. A couple of implications as we think of the eternal spirit. And again, think of it in the context of salvation. The assurance... He will not leave us and His work in us will not stop. That's the assurance we have out of it. He will not leave us, but His work in us will not stop. The work of salvation. And our response is what we just talked about. So we serve in response to His incredible work. We serve in response to His incredible work. So eternal spirit means He's applying Christ's blood to our lives eternally. Praise God. What a gift. Second name this morning is the spirit of life. The spirit of life. And all of these have to do with the atoning work of Christ, the, the, the giving of salvation. Flip back a, a few books to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'd love for you to turn there because this is just a magnificent passage. They all are. But, but this one's just really special. Romans 8, and we'll look at at verses 1 through 3, and actually we'll we'll read on from there a little bit later. 
But look for the name of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those, are who in Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Key verse there is verse 2. That's where the name uh, Spirit of Life is given to the Holy Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of Life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And again, we see the work of the Holy Spirit bringing new life, freeing us from bondage to sin and to death. A couple of things for us to understand. What does it mean for the law of? And, and, And it's used twice there. The law of the Spirit of Life, the law of sin and death. And Sometimes law is used of the, the Torah, the Old Testament. But in this case, love is, is used of a principle or a power to do something. So a, a guiding principle. The operating principle. So it would be sort of like when we say the law of gravity. That, that's not laws we follow, but gravity pretty much affects our lives, right? Or Murphy's Law. It, it's a true thing. You know, things like you drop a screw and it's guaranteed it will roll to the, the center of the car underneath. Or you try to do something nice for your family and save money by getting an artificial tree. <laughs> and they turn against you. We're driving along this week. It hasn't stopped. We're driving along this week and we pass a car with a tree on the roof. One of the kids said, look. they have a tree on their car another one of the kids said yeah but that's not us this year (laughs) this is horrible it's murphy's law telling Susie, maybe we'll go out and get a small tree and then set up the other one yesterday i offered the kids I, i could set up the fake tree at mom and dad's house and we could go cut it down, put it on the car, and, and drive around the block a couple times. Mark just looked at me and said, really, Dad? <laughs> um, but Murphy's Law, things, you know, and we're, we're familiar with Murphy's Law. Bad things are going to happen, and it's an operating principle. That's how law of is used in this verse. The law of the Spirit of life is how is the Holy Spirit going to be the operating principle in our lives? How is he going to be the controlling factor versus the law of sin and death, which before Christ is the only controlling factor in our lives? There is no way around it. And so think of that when you read verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, from the power of. If we explore those, the law of sin and death that he's referring to, He's referring to our sin nature. We are born with it. We inherit it. We are in slavery to it from day one. There is none righteous, no, not one. The law of sin and death is present in our lives from birth. We cannot escape it. It is choking us. It is keeping us in slavery. It blinds us to even recognizing sin in our lives. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Think about that wording. Not just you were sort of sick in your, your sins and trespasses. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Not too many dead people get up and do anything. 
it's, it's a statement of complete and utter slavery to sin. That's the law of sin and death. We know Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And so we're born with sin, we're in slavery to it, we cannot get out of it on our own, and the result of that is death. And so what, what, what Paul here through the Holy Spirit is saying is the law of sin and death is what we had when we started. This is what you're born with. And it is grabbing you and holding on to you and doesn't want, you to let it, doesn't want to let you go. But he's contrasting that with the law of the spirit of life that has set you free. This is talking about the bondage of sin. But the spirit of life has set you free. And, and how this works, he set you free in Christ Jesus. And, and so the Holy Spirit is applying the work of Christ to our lives. And to use just another poor example, but maybe to help us think of how this might work, I had to go to the doctor this week, and the doctor gave me some medication. Now, now did the doctor make the medication? No. Did he make the effectiveness of the medication? The medication was was made by the the scientists that made it, and they've put their research into it. The doctor is applying it to my life and my situation. And he's saying, no, this is how it works. And and I know that analogy breaks down in places, but the, the, Jesus Christ has done the work of salvation. He was the sacrifice in my place on the cross. He paid the price for my sins. He took the penalty on himself. The Holy Spirit then takes that work and convicts me and applies it into my life. See how the two work together? And if I reject that, I reject salvation and life with Christ. And so the ministry of the Spirit the ministry of the spirit of life applies the work of Christ to bring us from death to life, to free us from the power of sin. And as the verse says, only by living in Christ Jesus do we have that. Only then can we break the, the, the stranglehold of sin. God wants to give us life through his spirit. He wants to give us freedom. He wants to replace our old desires for sinful things, for fleshly things. He wants to replace those with new ones because he knows the result of those strangles us. He leads us to a brand new life. But we have to live by the Spirit. So many times we come to Christianity and we we think of of God's Word as a list of do-nots. Do not do this. Do not do this. Man, it says I I can't be angry. It says that I I can't be sexual before marriage. It says that I I have to have good attitudes. And it's so constricting. It's it's so hard. That's not what God intended. He gave us these things because these are things that give us freedom from sin. To just try to do the right things harder isn't going to help. We've got to live by the Spirit. We've got to replace the sinful desires with a desire for God a desire to live by the Spirit. Sometimes we say, well, I want freedom. I want the freedom to sin. The problem is sinning enslaves us. So freedom to sin is actually enslavement to sin. It'd be like if if, if we were in, in a jail cell and we say, I want the freedom to move around the cell. Then I'm good. Well, that's silly because you're still in the cell. You're still locked up. And the Holy Spirit says, if you follow the the instructions I've given because I love you, because I want you to have a full life, if you follow those, it's the key to the cell. 
gives us the key to get out of it. To get past those things. If we're struggling with repetitive sin in our lives, if we're struggling with conquering sin, we need to stop not trying to do it and start trying to live by the Holy Spirit. That makes sense? It's got to be a change in motives. It's got to be a change in reason. The Holy Spirit is there. The Spirit of life wants to release us from the bondage of the law of sin. Let's read on. In in Romans 8, Paul goes on and talks about just that. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's talking about living not by what we want, not by our sinful desires, but by what God wants through the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. And he's challenging us there. What do we think about? What are we filling our mind with? Is it what I want? What I wish I had? What my neighbor has that I wish I had? Or is it on what what does the Holy Spirit want to do here? What might the Holy Spirit be doing today? What might the Holy Spirit want me to say to my neighbor? And and it's consciously saying, I am going to dwell on the Holy Spirit. I am going to think about the truths of Scripture. I'm going to love reading Scripture. I'm going to get into theology. I'm going to every day ask the Holy Spirit to guide and direct what I'm doing. And then we're setting our minds on the Spirit instead of the flesh. And Paul concludes it in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, the law of sin and death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace, the law of the Spirit of life. We're to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. One of the things that the Spirit of life does is He assures us of our eternal life. The, the first name talked about is eternality, but now He's identified with life. And He is the one that gives us life. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, in verse 11, if He dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He will give eternal life quote by John Stott. I don't think I put it in your notes, but Don, I have a slide. The Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life that is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. I love that. When we talk about how to live by the Spirit, what life in the Spirit looks like. It's to be animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. That takes putting our mind on the Holy Spirit, though. He's not going to come in and do that when we're not giving Him opportunity. The implication there, application, just a question that I put in your notes. Do I act dead or alive? Do I act dead or alive? Can someone look at me and say, man, they're dead in their sin? Or can they look at me and say, they're alive in Christ? Some of that has to do with our demeanor. How, how do we go about life? If, if we are always looking dead, we're reflecting on the Holy Spirit poorly. The Holy Spirit has broken the bondage of sin. He has given us life in Christ. 
And that should create a joy. We need to refocus our mind on Him as well if we're struggling with sin and attitudes. What does God want me to do today? Just one other word. Sometimes idleness gets in the way here. And we try not to do things, but when we don't fill it with serving God, when we don't fill it with with seeking the Holy Spirit, we end up idle. And idleness is a killer to our Christian walk. I I used to say at camp when we would take kids up to Hume's summer camp, I'd say, man, there's too much free time in the afternoon because idleness breeds creativity. (laughs) And creativity is not really what I'm looking for at summer camp. (laughs) Idleness is dangerous. But living by the Spirit says, what do you want me to do today, God? How do you want me to serve you? It means coming to church, and Mark and I talked about this this morning, coming to church and saying, who do I need to minister to today? Who am I going to see that needs a hug? Needs someone to pray with them? We need to give our all to serving God. Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Aka Indians who lost his life, but the, the wives of this group came and the, the Indians ended up coming to Christ. He wrote in a diary entry. This isn't the famous Jim Elliott quote. It's a different one. He wrote, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Amazing. The spirit of life wants to give you a full life. He hasn't promised a long life here on earth, but he's promised eternal life with God Almighty. And that frees us to serve God. Last name this morning is the Spirit of Grace. The Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10, 29. And when we think of grace, we love grace, right? We, we sang about it this morning, your grace is enough, because grace is God's unmerited favor on those who believe. He takes something we don't deserve and he gives it to us and he blesses us with it. His, the, the salvation work of His Son through the Holy Spirit. And, and so, so grace is this, this wonderful thing, this amazing thing. And when we think of the Spirit of grace, we're thinking that the Holy Spirit is taking the grace of God and just dumping it into our lives. Again, He's the agent. He, he's the one that, that's, that's putting that into practice in our lives. Do you need God's grace today? Yes. The answer is yes. Do we need God's grace today? Absolutely. There are so many things that we should be grateful for, so many things that we should be praising God for because they're part of His grace. In fact, we know that we can only, we, we can only experience God's grace through the drawing of the Holy Spirit. We, we know from God's Word that none of us will approach God on our own. None of us will seek God on our own. But as the Holy Spirit convicts, that's one of His works, as He convicts us of our sin, as He draws us to the Father, He opens the scales of our sin nature to where we can see the truth of what Jesus has done. And through the Holy Spirit, we can have life in Christ. And only through the Spirit of grace can we experience God's grace. What an incredible work of God. And so this name's pretty incredible. What's interesting, though, when we look at the context of Hebrews 10.29, it's used in the context of one of the, the, the harshest warning passages in Hebrews. And so this wonderful name is used to say, you better watch out. Don't, don't start singing the rest of the song. 
And so turn to Hebrews 10.29. I want to read the warning passage. And this is sobering. But I want you to look for spirit of grace. And again, we ask the question, why is this name, and this is the only place this name is used of the Holy Spirit, why is this name used in this passage? Hebrews 10. I'm going to go all the way back to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That should make us shake a little bit right there. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See what I mean by this is pretty direct, pretty harsh. goes on. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's saying in the Old Testament, if you, if you break the law, there's two or three witnesses, you die. It's a death penalty. How much worse, again, another argument from the lesser or the greater, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just what you came this morning to hear, right? Merry Christmas. But we need to dig into this. We need to take passages like this seriously because there's three things that are mentioned in 29, three things that incur the wrath of God. And and these are all coming out of verse 6, that if we know the truth, if we've experienced the truth of of God's word and, and we know what he's asked us to do and we deliberately keep on sinning, and there's two key words there, deliberately, And continuing, keep on, is the idea of continuing to do it. We deliberately keep on sinning, then we need to be afraid, be very afraid. And in verse 29, it talks about what that kind of sin does. And village, I don't think we take sin seriously sometimes. I don't think we realize what we are doing to God, what we are doing to the Holy Spirit. And verse 29 talks about that. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, first, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Think about that language. Trampling underfoot the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Rejecting a sacrifice. The idea is to have a disdain, a contempt for Jesus and His work. When we sin, when we deliberately sin, knowing what God wants us to do, we are spitting on the cross. And it's disdain. We are stepping on the work of Christ. Does that bring a little more seriousness to sin? That's how serious sin is because we are deliberately rebelling against the God who has given us everything. But in case we don't get it, he gives a second thing in that verse. That person has also profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He has despised the blood of Christ The idea is to treat it as unholy, to treat it as dirty. The blood that cost Jesus' life, the blood that was shed in my place, the blood that secured salvation is profaned, disrespected, treated as unholy when we sin. Deliberately and continually. And then the last one, we outrage the spirit of grace. We outrage the spirit of grace. 
That's where this name for the Holy Spirit is used. And the concept is the Holy Spirit has poured God's grace in our lives. He has convicted us. He has forgiven. He's been the agent of forgiveness of sins. And when we sin after that, in spite of that, we are outraging the Holy Spirit for what he has given us. You know, we're at Christmas time and you guys are going to give gifts at Christmas. And if you work hard and you, you have the perfect gift for someone, maybe, you know, for whatever reason, you have a lot of money and you give somebody a car. Your pastor, for instance. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> and you give somebody a car and it's the perfect car and you know they love it and they go outside and they see the bow on it and you're like, yeah, and they're like, this is the stupidest gift ever. I can't believe you did this. What a jerk you are for doing this to me. And they walk inside and they play with a box. That'd make you a little angry. A little upset. It's a little taste of what we do to the Holy Spirit who has given us the gift of grace. And we mock it by still living in sin. This is convicting to me. What areas of my life am I grieving the Holy Spirit in? What areas of my life am I refusing to hand over to God? Am I rejecting His revelation in? This brings to mind the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels. In Ephesians, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We talked about the Holy Spirit is real. He is indwelling us. He is with us. And so as one indwelling us, when we sin, we are dragging him through that and he is grieving. He is outraged. Do we have that same outrage of sin? Are we that serious about ridding sin in our lives? One of the things we can do this week, you and I both, to, to, to show our seriousness of sin, we can start praying to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, if there is anything in my life that is grieving you, show me this week. And, and don't just pay lip service to that prayer. Pray it honestly and openly and be prepared for God to show you something. Holy Spirit, if there is anything in my life that is grieving you this week, show it to me. Disturb me with it. Afflict me with it. Don't let me go on my day until I've dealt with it. Because then we start to appreciate the spirit of grace rather than mock the spirit of grace. Applications as we wrap up today, we need to guard our hearts against making light of grace. God's grace cost Jesus his life. Live like it matters. Live like it's worth something. Every time we sing Amazing Grace, it should still be amazing. And not just words to a song that we love. Secondly, don't waste or mock grace. Don't waste or mock grace by living with sin, by staying in the cell when when the Holy Spirit offers the key. Dear Lord God, our Father, thank you for fixing this for bringing a fix for the problem of sin, for the bondage of sin, Lord. And as we look at a dark world that is still suffering under the bondage of sin and the oppression of sin, Lord, help us not to question you, but to see you as the answer. 
to proclaim you as the answer. That through your spirit, Jesus Christ has gone to the cross. Through your spirit, you offer life and freedom from sin. Through your spirit, Lord, you offer us grace that we don't deserve. Thank you, God. May we respond with worship and service and praise, giving our hearts completely to you. Lord God, help us to not make light of grace. And I do pray in my life, if there is anything this week that is grieving you, show me. Show me, God, that I may experience the fullness of your life all the more, that I may see your grace all the more and serve you all the more. Lord, we praise and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.